Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Welcome to episode five of the Corona Diaries, um, um, the effervescent and, and beautifully uh, turned out Mr. Steve Hogarth is on screen. I'm looking at him now. As he as he doffs his his glasses, looking very uh, sophisticated this morning, H. Only from the nose up, from the nose down, a little like, like kind of homeless person. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a tooth in. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm used, I'm used, I'm used to seeing you without the tooth now. That's just the norm for me. Oh God, my kingdom for a dentist. Oh, it'll happen. You'll get there. You'll get there at some point. It's not in the first wave of lockdown, though, is it? Not unless you can find one that operates out of a garden centre. No, no. Even Mosley doesn't know a dodgy dentist. We've we've we've, we've trawled the shires. All we could all we could find was Lorraine. <laughs> oh, bless you, Lorraine, if you're listening. Um, we had to find. We had to find out if Lorraine's tuned in. Um, First thing I suppose we need to talk about, Yeah, I've woken up this morning, you've woken up this morning, to Marillion, number one in the Amazon Music Charts. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, no, totally amazing. I mean, that's, that's going to put a spring in your step at the beginning of a, on a Monday morning. So uh, I'm in a very good mood because of that. Um, well, I, I wasn't until I saw my son's phone bill, which, uh, <laughs> which has subdued me slightly. But... Um, <laughs> But what the hell? We're number one in the uh, Amazon. That's yeah. got to be worth at least seven pounds fifty in royalties. So, so it's an exciting day. Yeah, you'll be getting the equivalent of a pack of polos <laughs> in Spotify royalties for that one. Yeah, that's going to be. Yeah, but it's a lovely video. Everything worked out really nicely. Tim did a great job. I'm assuming Tim did it. Yeah, Tim. Tim edited it together. Lu- Lucy must take a lot of the credit for, first of all, thinking it would be a beautiful thing to do. Um, badgering the five of us into doing it and then secretly initially at least secretly she uh, she uh, asked the the fans of you know around the world to submit video for the video um she even she's even got Lynette from vibes dancing in the garden i didn't know anything about that either um so it was a little surprise for the band um and we we eventually cottoned onto it because in the end, I think she had to tell us about it in order to make us record the thing. Because um, <laughs> we all kept going, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to, no, you have to do it. It's urgent. It's urgent. All right, all right, all right. Um, so it's turned out really well. And I, I've I've found that even, even people here in the village um, who I really wouldn't say are Marillion fans at all, um, have sent me little notes going, hey, I heard that song made again. It's a really cool song. I really like it. So I think it's a song that can, um, you know, can can move outside of, of, of our 
what you might call our traditional fan base, whatever that is. Um, I suppose by that I mean people who routinely are able to put up with 27 chord changes and a few changes in time signature. There's a lot of people in this world who can't put up with that. Um, and I think this song can kind of can tickle their, their taste buds a little bit in a way that perhaps some of our more uh, complex stuff might, might just, they might just go, oh, bloody hell. What's all that? I don't about? want to raise anybody's hopes, but it is actually, you're right in that respect. It's the kind of thing now where we are that could really capture the public conscience. It could hit a nerve and it could actually do really well. It could break out of of the circle. Well, you know, I've been, I've I've entertained that thought so many times over the last 40 years. But you've stopped doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to be more of the opinion... Look, we're a bunch of old blokes. Who the hell's going to get excited about what we're doing? And then, you know, when you turn the TV on and you're looking at people who look like fashion models, um, who are kids, you know, who, who are pretty and um, or they're rapping or whatever they're doing, you know, and they're part of they're part of what is sort of cool culture. We got no, we got nothing to do with that. So I I don't see how we're gonna we're gonna set the world alight. I think we're we we do what we do, and pe- people who dig it dig it. Uh, I'd like to think they dig it because it, it it represents something honest and true in a in a world full of artifice. Um, and by its very nature, I don't think that's going to catch on with the public that voted for Brexit and Trump. You know. We'll, no, you're probably right. Maybe the point is you're not quite old enough yet. Yeah, I think death helps a lot as well. <laughs> so in that sense, I'm not old enough. <laughs> would it would it have to be your death, or would it, could, could it just be one of the other members of the band that would do it? I, well, I think I'd have to die to ever be recognised as as the singer that succeeded Fish for a kickoff. <laughs> you know, nothing short of dying will uh, will 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 do it for a lot of people. Um, right. And even then, it might not. It is. I mean, we do. We do want our. We do want our stars to die. I think. I mean, it's always a shame when they get old. You know, you do. You do want them to. You know, how cool would Jimi Hendrix be now if he was, if he was seventy-eight? You know, I mean, I'm talking rubbish. I am talking rubbish. Jimmy Jimi Hendrix would be cool at any age, wasn't he? Because he had cool bones. Yeah, do you know what? I think he would yeah. because I think he'd be cool in the way that Prince was still cool when he was. You know, I know, I know we lost Prince as well, but Prince got that bit older and was still uber uber cool. So he probably would still be. He would have looked the same Prince as well because he kind of looked seventy when he was twenty three, didn't he, Jimmy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he he was one. He had one of those faces that really could be old or young. Um, you know, he was kind of ugly in a really beautiful way. Uh, and he wore great clothes, and so he could have got old. He'd still have been an amazing guitarist, and he would still have looked more or less the same, and, uh, you know, he'd have still been wearing very cool jackets. Um, he looked he looked lived in even back then, didn't he? He looked like he knew what was going on. He had not the way to the world, but he looked like he, he'd got all that life experience, even in his early 20s. Yeah, and everyone who met him... Said he was so lovely. Said he was just full of love and just a very, very sweet person. 
you know. Um, anyway, we digress. We've 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 already gone off on a rabbit hole, but the, the, that's what we do. Um, so yeah, made again, brilliant. Um, and here's hoping that carries on. Um, I thought, I thought, because I've noticed a few people have said some nice things about us uh, on Facebook and on reviews and bits and pieces. So I thought I'd call a few of them out. I'm going to start by calling out Helen Stubbs because Helen Stubbs on Facebook, bless her, put a lovely um, post out about the podcast. Um, saying how much she was enjoying it. Um, the podcast feels relaxed, like two friends down the pub. Well, if only, if only we um, were down the pub. Be nice, wouldn't it? But we're sort of spiritually down the pub, aren't we? Thank yeah. you, Helen. That's cool. Cool of you to say that, Helen. Um, Paul, Paul Kirkpatrick has confirmed uh, it was a false widow spider that bit you. Oh, okay. Not, not, not quite sure was how he, he knows, but he's been bitten, bitten by one oh, as well. He wasn't crouching in the bag. Next to the no. spider, no. When it happened, well, I d- he could have been because I, I was out of there that. so fast. They could, they could, the Beach Boys could have been in there. I wouldn't have known. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you'd have thought the tight harmonies might have given it away. Beach Boys were in there, but um, uh, we don't know if Paul was in the bag or even somewhere down, you know, near your rhubarb. Um, but he can confirm it was a false widow spider. So, so that's that's good. Yeah. Um, Dave, Dave Gilbert, bless him, has asked about uh, the mugs. Oh yes, because uh, I I put a post out when I was listening to last week's show. I was listening to the final edit before it went out, and I was doing it in the garden. And I happened to have a cup of tea in my Corona Diaries mug, and he asked about that. Um, he thinks we need merch. He thinks we need Corona Diaries merch. Oh. He doesn't think we need much because he doesn't think the demand's going to be that high. So maybe just. Mugs, stickers, clothing, towels, posters, key rings, cushions, and coasters. Um, so, so we need to give that some thought. Petri dishes be uh, be good. Well, he missed out face masks, <laughs> as I pointed out to him. So, uh, so we need to think. We need to think about that as well. So, thanks, dentures, Dave. Corona Diaries, dentures, dentures. dentures. Yeah, with Corona written across the teeth. Yeah. Hucknall had one, didn't he? He had something weird in his tooth. You ought to have a little Corona diary. Have a little... A little I don't yeah. know how you do that, but dentures. Dentures are on the yeah. list. That's a, that's a particular demographic we're going out after. Of course, you'd have to be fitted for them. You'd have to be fitted for them and put an order in. It'd take you about a year to get them and they'd be 500 quid. But hey... It's a genius, son. Lorraine, if you're listening. <laughs> Lorraine in Berkhamstead, ladies and gentlemen. She's yes, your girl. We can we can include you on this, Lorraine. Just get in touch. We'll uh, we'll make it I work. Um Steridant might do yeah. as a, a branded yeah. might do as a branded product, which would be quite nice. Um I was as I was banging around around Facebook, I noticed a picture you'd put out from last year of you in a studio with Mike Reed. Oh, um, <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm all about that, darling. I, I, I stagger from one to the other, as you know. Yeah, we we. Uh, how did that happen? I ran into this bloke called Peter Ross, who uh, was a. Fr- I thought he was Ross Ballard's manager uh, because during um, one of the Trevor Horn shows, he was doing a show up in Glasgow, and um, Trevor and Lol and Trevor's assistant, Suzanne, were all flying up to Glasgow at like seven in the morning. And they said, oh, we've booked you a flight on with us. And I thought, what? I'm not getting, what? Seven in the morning? Are you having a laugh? <laughs> so 
Um, me and Ross flew up later because we weren't nuts. Um, and and when I got to the airport, I don't think I'd even met Ross Ballard properly before. Um, and he got this friend called Peter Ross with him who looked much more like a manager, and I just assumed it was Ross's manager. And they went everywhere together um, the whole time we were up in Glasgow. But it turned out he was just a mate. Um, but but Peter Ross used to be a um, a DJ on Radio Luxembourg at one point in his checkered past okay. and knows quite a lot of the DJs. And he knew Mike Reed quite well. And he, he phoned me up and said, oh, Mike's doing this pilot for a, a quiz show. Do you, you know, do you, do you fancy doing it? Um, Trevor and Lol are going to do it. Do you want to do it? And so I said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. So I went down there, um, it, you know, went up to London to do it um, and, it, and, and ended up doing, doing um, an episode with Toya and the girls from Buck's Fizz. So it was all very showbiz. Um, and and Mike, um, Mike, Mike was the, the compare. And I came out of there with, you know, quite a lot of respect for Mike and what he's prepared to endure in the name. I didn't realise it was such a pain in the arse doing these things. You know, when, when you're actually there, you know, and he'd do this long intro and he'll take a breath and someone will say down the earpiece, oh, no, can you just do that again? You know, the light was wrong on this or, or we had that. And, and he goes, sure, and he does it all again. And then, they, oh, uh, Mike, Mike, can you just... Uh, from uh, from where you said, uh, and in 1969, can you just go from there again, please? And that was going on all day long. And I was just like, God, if that was me, I'd have punched someone ages ago, you know. <laughs> and, and he was just so patient and so pro. So you think, well, you know, these, these people do know what they're doing. And as we left, a load of other people were filing in. They were going to shoot another episode. And I said hi to Nick Haywood, and uh, here I am name dropping again. And Paul Young and Steve Norman, the sax player from, um, was he Steve? I think it's Steve. They called him Chopper Norman. So I could, I've, never, I've never known his first name because they called him <laughs> Chopper for obvious reasons, I think. And he was the sax player in Spandau Ballet. <laughs> so, Is he a tree surgeon <laughs> in his spare time? <laughs> well, he's been known to whip a tree down if he turns suddenly, yeah. I th- I th- <laughs> Oh, um, <laughs> okay, fine. Well, so we, we have to look out. Hopefully, it may. <laughs> I've been thrown by that completely, Steve. If you're listening, even if you called Steve. <laughs> oh, so it might happen. Then it might it might appear. Yeah, um, ho- hopefully it was good fun. It was good fun. Lol was very quiet because he's extremely funny, kind of off camera. But I think it was. A, I don't know. Maybe he felt like he should be on his best behaviour. So he was quite subdued, but um, no, it was it was it was fun. It was fun doing it and uh, having a having a rap with Toya was quite fun because of course she's married to Robert Fripp, so yes. she was she was telling me how um, Robert has never had any money out of Bowie's estate for uh, the guitar playing on Heroes. Um, wow! Because they say he can't prove it was him. I mean, it's obviously him. Nobody, you know, no one else would have done that. Um, anyway, 
I'll, I'll end up in court if I carry on like this. But but apparently he's never been um, he's never been properly acknowledged as having played played that, let alone paid for it. Yeah. Mm, that's a shame. Man, have, have you seen any of those videos that Toya and Robert Fripp have been putting out, dancing in their garden? No. They're truly no. mad. I mean, he's wearing tights uh, and frolicking about, and they, they're both dressed as bees, and one of them, and they're just running <laughs> around in the garden. They're really bizarre. <laughs> I think, well, I didn't, she, didn't think Robert had it in him. She never struck me as, <laughs> never struck me as somebody who was altogether there, to be fair. <laughs> Well, she married uh, Robert Fripp. She can't have been. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, all right. Okay. Um, the um, I've, I've kind of lost my train of thought there for a second. <laughs> we're recording. Uh, we're recording on a Monday. Yeah, that's shocking. Uh, uh, which is which is very well very organised for us, but that's because I believe um, as you are following Boris's directive and you're going back to work, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, we, we we I'm 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 happy to say that um, from tomorrow we'll be back in the racket club at um, you know thirty feet apart or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say you're going to socially distance. Well, we always did. You know, we were always <laughs> <laughs> we were socially distancing before we had to. Uh, we were always in opposite ends of the the room for. Uh, you know, for for what's the word? Um, uh, oh God, I can't think of it. You know, so that so that acoustically we didn't spill over each other. You've got to be in very as far apart as you can be, otherwise you're all over each other's tracks. So um, I would always be in one corner, and Mark would be in another, and Rothers would be in another, and Ian would be in a kind of something that looks like a homemade greenhouse. Um, well, Ian's got his own Sainsbury's screen now, hasn't he? I mean, he's got his own. Yes. Every checkout at Sainsbury's looks like where Ian sits in racket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in. He's in a sort of box covered in very thick lumps of wood and perspex and offensive stickers. Um, and he sits in there. Nobody knows what he's doing in there. No. It's probably best not to ask. Usually the accounts, to be fair. Before I've, I've got a serious question, or I've got a question I was going to ask you today, but before we do that, I've just thought of something else that, that triggered while we were talking then. Um, there's been a lot of feedback about your laugh. <laughs> oh, that one. Uh, uh, the, the, the Sid James S <laughs> laugh that appears to be all over the podcast. Well, now. I've got Sid's mouth. Uh, these days, I think. I think yeah. yeah, you have actually got Sid's mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could do a remake of Hancock. We need to find somebody to play Hancock to, to your Sid James. Um, um, but, yeah, there's been a few people pointed out about your laugh. I think because I don't think anybody really thought it would. That, you know that section on Strange Engine where it plays on forever? Oh, and there's really, the giggling on the end. And the giggling yeah, at the end, which I have to say is nice, but it's bloody annoying if it's on a mix. And you've got to wait another fifteen minutes before the next track kicks. All oh, right, yeah. Uh, and then people have, uh, and then people have, you know, wonder whether actually that was your laugh. And since your laugh's been all over the podcast, it's uh, it's become a bit of a thing. I can't even remember what I was laughing at at the end of that. I got the giggles and lost lost my shit for a bit. Anyway, um, we talked a little bit about the um, diary section that we're going to do today and um, because there's a bit in that diary section about your mate from the band Harlow, Benneth, <laughs> uh, 
uh, I thought I'd ask you a little bit more about Harlow because the only time we've touched on Harlow has been through sort of darker, darker times with you obviously being, you know, virtually murdered on a boat. Mm. So there must have been happier times to the to the Harlow experience. Um, <clears throat> so when did Harlow start? Oh, my goodness. Um, I must have been about 20 or 21, so that puts it at 76, 77, I suppose. Um, I just got out of uh, college. I'd been, at, um, I'd been at Trent Poly doing a degree in electrical engineering, um, and it was a sandwich course, so you did two years, and then... Um, you did a year in the workplace and then you did a final year. So I was doing my year in the workplace and my dad had managed to blag me, blag me a gig in, with the engineers in the, in the uh, company that he worked for, which was called Bride and Wire. And they used to, they, they used to be a, a wire drawing um, factory that made, made steel ropes for um, suspension bridges and mine shafts and stuff. Do you know what? I'm going to have to jump in here because I was born and raised in Retford, and Bryden had a had a had a spot in. Retford. They did have a spot. I had friends that worked for Bryden in Retford, and they had one in Cleckheaton near Huddersfield. Yes, in and I used yeah. to sometimes go, have to go there to Cleckheaton to uh, tinker about in the electric uh, in the electric cupboards. <laughs> I don't, they were called cupboards. <laughs> I've forgotten. Uh, <laughs> Tinker about in the electric cupboards. <laughs> and that's not a euphemism, All I can folks. think about when I think of Cleckheaton is custard because um, the, the works canteen had the best custard I've ever tasted. And so whenever we had to go to Cleckheaton, uh, I would look forward to the custard. Um, and it, it never disappointed and it was a man. That's a great reason to go to Cleckheaton. Yes, yes, Cleckheaton. What a strange, yeah, strange. Possibly the only reason to go to Cleckheaton for somebody who no, lives near Cleckheaton. somebody. I think it was Louise from EMI. I've got a feeling she might have been born or, or lived in Cleckheaton. You don't meet a lot of people from Cleckheaton. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing a bit. Um, I ended up working at Bryden uh, as an electrical engineer designing um, thyristor... Uh, control systems for uh, big DC motors Um, and um, being in a band at night um, I got into this band with Benneth who was playing drums um, and I'd been sort of best mates at school with him so it was a sort of one of those bands you know like most people's first bands you get together at school and um, Kev Donahue nearly killed me. He was the bass player. He was at our school as well. And our guitarist was called Des O'Connor, real name. Um, and he was really, he was really good um, and wrote good songs too. He was a talented chap. Um, and he also used to put the posters up around Doncaster. We, we had this gig at a, a rough pub called the Woolpack in the marketplace which had a bit of a reputation for you ending up dead if you went there on a Saturday. But we, we, we used to play there midweek and it, was, it, it wasn't it was nearly as violent in the middle of the week. Um, 
<laughs> what a what a great thing that is. Come midweek, it's not nearly as violent. <laughs> well, bearing in mind it's Doncaster, you know, it's, it's, it's Doncaster, still yeah. an undercurrent of malice. <laughs> uh, but um, Des used to put the he used to go out fly posting and put the posters up advertising our gigs at the Woolpack. And when you know, and from time to time, the police would stop him, ask him his name. He'd say Des O'Connor, and they'd just haul him in <laughs> immediately. So uh, there's there, there's a downside to having having a name that happens to be the same as him, famous variety entertainer at the time. Um, so we did we used that was after you know while I was doing my theoretical year in in the workplace, um, I would go and play with Harlow, who was who were named after Gene Harlow, not Harlow in Essex, but 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 Gene Harlow the the film actress. It's a shit name, isn't it? But, you know, we were kids. Um, and, and then we did all the working men's clubs as well. We used to go around doing all of that because there was a big circuit then in all the mining mm-hmm. villages. Huge circuit. Wow. Um, so we, we cut our teeth. But but we wouldn't do covers. We refused to do covers. We would only do our own stuff, which made you deeply unpopular in a working men's club. In fact, I was once threatened at knife point in a toilet. Um, he, w- he would stab me if we didn't do Delilah in the next set. Um, so we did it, obviously. But that was the only time we've ever done a cover, and it was in order to avoid death. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is that, a good reason. That was in Rotherham. The place was full of sailors, and nobody knows. I mean, I don't know why... A, a working men's club in Rotherham would be full of sailors, but it was. And one of them threatened me with a knife and the gents. Um, so, yeah, you got to be careful up there. It was pretty feral. I mean, I remember when I first moved to London, um, walking around London thinking, I couldn't believe how safe it was, how, how chilled out it was. I thought moving to a big city would be... Ooh, you know, might be a bit dangerous in the big city. I mean, it was just like some kind of hippie commune compared to Doncaster. What uh, year was that, though? When I went down, well, when I went down London the first time was probably about seventy-seven. That's another story. Wow, I ended up, I ended up um, practically being raped by a bloke called Jack Barry, who used to run the Marquee Club. And uh, I ended up, I ended up with me, with me back, we back to the glass of a shop in Wardour Street at about three a.m. while he was trying to get his hands inside me trousers. Yeah, he was rampant. But that's another story. And you felt safer in London. <laughs> well, it was. <laughs> it was well intentioned, you know. All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> he wasn't carrying it a would... weapon. It made a nice change. Would have driven me home afterwards. It was all fine. <laughs> he would have. <laughs> oh. I mean, a serious point because I mean, I grew up. I'm a few years behind you, but I mean, I grew up um, through the late seventies and early eighties in that part of South Yorkshire, North Nottinghamshire, and it was, it was, it wasn't a nice place. There was a lot of tension. There's a lot of I can understand why you would feel that way about places like Sheffield and Rotherham and Doncaster because there was, you know, there were some really rough people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of the miners um, were, you know, were really rough. They went down the pit because 
you know, there wasn't really anything else they could have managed. Um, um, I mean, I'm not saying this about all of them. I mean, there were some really lovely people down the pit. My dad had a few few friends who were miners, and they were uh, they were really nice blokes, and they were and some of them were very very intelligent. But a lot of the younger ones were, you know, the bottom of the stream. You know, they were kind of, uh, and they would go out as young men do, I suppose, uh, uh, on a weekend, drink a lot and get into fights. And if you if you were unlucky enough to come across them, especially if you were wearing a bathrobe and yellow clogs, which I used to on a Saturday night, I was a bit of a target. <laughs> I bet people saw you walking down the street and thought, fantastic, I'm in for a quiet night tonight. They used to fight amongst themselves to be the first one to hit me. <laughs> <laughs> so, good Lord, look over there, look at that commotion. Whatever, whatever can be the trouble. <laughs> oh, they're coming towards me. Not only am I going to get the shit kicked out of me, but also by the one that's the best of that bunch. <laughs> That's yeah. not. That doesn't bode well. <laughs> yes, yeah, Darwin would have approved. <laughs> yes, it was yeah, very Darwin-esque. Anyway, back to back to Harlow. Um, <laughs> so you're knocking around with this band hmm. um, in and, Donny. And, 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 and in, in Donny. What happened was we we did all of these gigs and we were very ambitious and we refused to do covers, which meant that we only played most of these working men's clubs once because they wouldn't have us back. Um, and then I think we ran into Jonathan King. He was in a he'd, he'd come up. I mean, I've got to be careful what I say here, but I I, I think he'd come up in search of romantic liaison uh, with with the young people of Yorkshire. Um, even I've said too much already. I don't know this for a fact, but anyway, he was hanging around in a wine bar in in Doncaster and. Um, Somehow we ran into him, and I kind of got to know him, and I like him. I like I like Jonathan. He was he was uh, he was always very cool, and he he never sort of tried anything out of order with me. Um, but um, he offered us a deal in the end. He offered us a singles deal, and so I that was that. I ragged my job in, ragged my degree in, just just called a halt to all of it. And we moved down to, to London in a van. We had this parcels van um, with all the equipment in it. And we all moved down to London. Um, and my girlfriend at the time, who became my, my ex-wife, uh, she was living in Shepparton in Middlesex. And so I moved in with her. And um, just after they got the van down to London, it broke down somewhere in London and had to be towed away. So then the van ended up in a pound somewhere in London with all our backline and gear in it, and none of us could afford to get it out of the pound. So we split up, and that was that. So then having moved to London <laughs> with Harlow, uh, the van had broken down, so we had to split up. So then I was living in Shepparton and a bit of a loose end. I became a graphic artist at that point, even though I've got no artistic talent whatsoever. And um, 
And I thought, oh, what can I do? I better try and get into another band. So I found this band in the in the adverts in the back of the Melody Maker back in those days. You know, long time pre-internet. Uh, if you wanted a if you wanted to advertise for a member of your band, you'd put it in this newspaper that was a bit like the New Musical Express called the Melody Maker, which has long since gone bust. Um, and uh, this this. Glasgow band was looking for a keyboard player. And so I applied and I got the gig. I'd got a Wurlitzer piano and a Farfisa organ and that was good enough for them. Um, and I was in. So I think they were called Mo- Motion Pictures. And when I joined them, they changed their name to the Europeans. Um, and so then I was in the Europeans. And we used to rehearse in a place in Chelsea, down Lots Road, which is now a jazz club. Um, what's the name of it? Its name, it, it, I can't remember what it was called back then. I think it was called Suma, S-U-M-A, Rehearsal Rooms. And it was named after the guy that owned it, who was called Chris Suma. It was about six foot two, very thin. He was an alcoholic, and he was completely bonkers. And he used to sleep in there, um, you know, on the floor. And he had a lot of cats. And he used to talk like this. Oh, you guys are gorgeous. Oh, I'm going to order you some moonlight munchies. He'd come, he'd come into the room while you're rehearsing. He'd go, hey, hey guys, what's happening? i go, oh, hello, Chris. Waiting for him to leave. he go, oh, oh man, I've, just, I I've had the worst day. Anyway, are you hungry? I'm going, I'm, there was this um, burger place somewhere down the New King's Road called Moonlight Munchies uh, that did takeaways. And he'd just say, you guys are gorgeous. I'm going to buy you all some Moonlight Munchies. And he, he would take orders and get hamburgers in. And then about three days later, he'd burst into the room and go, you bastards, you ripped me off. I've got a bill here for food. And, and this would be food he'd already offered to buyers. But by then he'd, he'd forgotten it. Um. And you used to find him asleep on a stair, stairway, you know, because he was, he was basically very, very drunk. And he got a load of cats. And he said, let me introduce you to my cats. And he'd go, and he'd, he'd line them all up. And he'd go, this is Lieutenant A, Lieutenant D, Lieutenant B. No, 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 no. Lieutenant B, Lieutenant D. It, they were all called Lieutenant and a letter, and a letter of the alphabet. Um, but he could never quite make up his mind which one was which. And then he had little, he had little birds and budgies that used to just fly freely round his office and just shit everywhere. Um, and in the end, we were actually. And, and Billy Idol used to rehearse in the next door in the other studio. And remember that band uh, magazine, Howard Devoto? Yeah. They used to rehearse yeah. in there. I mean, a lot of the London bands used to rehearse in there. And we used to go in there at two in the morning because it was cheaper if you if you did the through-the-night session. So we would go in there, we'd put our gear in about one in the morning and rehearse till about six, and then I'd get on the train, go back to Shepparton in the morning. Uh, and I'd always fall asleep on it. I think I said in the last day, and I'd I'd wake yeah, up coming back the other way towards London. Yeah. God knows how how I survived all that because I just wasn't sleeping. 
hardly ever at that because I was uh, then I was a graphic artist during the day as well, and then up all night in Chelsea um, at night, and um, Chris wasn't paying his electricity bill, so so we were in there rehearsing one day and everything just went off, clunk, and that was the end of it. And we couldn't get our gear out because it was in a basement. You, you had to put it in a lift, and the lift wouldn't work. Um, and it took it took weeks just to get the gear back out of there. And then he, I think that was the end of it. Um, I think he owed the electricity company, you know, thousands of pounds that he hadn't paid. I don't suppose he's around now. It was quite a while ago, and he didn't look like he was long for this world. <laughs> So anyway, that was that was where we used start to, the Europeans. Yeah, that's where we used to we used to rehearse, you know, with Bill, with Billy Idol and Generation X across the way, um, and then we used to gig around, and we 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 used to have have a few regular gigs. You know, we we did the Greyhound in in uh, Fulham Palace Road. And we did all of those gigs that were, you know, we played at the Marquee Club and did all those little London clubs. Um, the punk kind of killed a lot of that because when punk exploded, according to the media, um, it became really fashionable just to trash places and spit at your audience and all of that, which looked great on the front page of the NME, but in real life wasn't really great. And people just stop going, you know. So I'm not going there. I'm not, I'm not going to go and pay four quid to sit in a place where the singer and the band's spitting at me. So people just stop going, you know. There'd be there'd be like half a dozen nutters who'd go in there and jump up and down, and no one else would go. And then and that whole uh, that whole scene just died on its ass then. And they all went out to business one at a time, which was a shame, really. Because all the really good bands that came out of the punk movement were good bands. They weren't really punks. They were just good bands who, who were wearing the clothes because it, it was a wave to ride in on. You know, and, and you know the really great bands like XTC and Squeeze and The Police that came out of... They were good bands uh, anyway. Were, were, yeah, and The Clash were amazing bands, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll stop with the Europeans there just because I've got an idea that we'll come back to Europeans in a future episode. Yeah, there's probably so we'll, much we'll, to tell because then we got a record deal and, you know, then we toured. and So, there's yeah, there's quite a lot of interesting things happening. Right, we'll, 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 we'll come back to that and we'll have a little, we'll have a little break and we'll, we'll move on to the diary section. And I seem to recall we're on holidays needing tour and you just arrived in Liverpool. Yes, yes I have. And the room smelled of carpet. Yeah, it did. Yeah, so we'll start. We'll we'll start from there. So enjoy enjoy the next section of the diary, and uh, and we'll 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 see you after that. Monday, sixteenth of September, Liverpool Royal Court Theatre. 1991, he said, looking around the front of the book. Woke up with a cold. Bollocks. Met Sally and Ali, who had made stage clothes for us at the hotel. 
Everything looks good, but you can tell they're only copies of the designer stuff. Under lights, they'll probably look fine. Went out with Trish, wardrobe girl and wife of Paul Devine, our lighting designer, to Boots to stock up on glycerin, knee supports, cold remedies, etc. And then had a walk round Liverpool trying to find stage clothes. Didn't. But found the Beatles shop, so bought a yellow submarine badge and a blue meanies badge, a t-shirt and a few postcards. Had lunch and catering at the Royal Court, and set Trish off sewing mirrors into my black coat. Paul Lewis, our tour manager, came down for a chat. Around three, we started running through the set, which went quite well. We ran through the set twice, which took until around 10pm. Then I went down to a cocktail bar with Mad Jack for a last drink. While we were in there, they played No One Can, which was pure coincidence. We returned to the hotel bar, where John Arneson had arrived, bearing news of meetings. EMI hate the wet hair performance stuff in the Dryland video. Surprise, surprise. Rupert Perry, the CEO, has promised to sort out America by the end of October. I'll believe it when we're in the charts. Tuesday, 17th of September. Liverpool Royal Court Theatre and the first show of the Holidays in Eden tour. Show day. Had a bit of a lie-in and went down to the venue to have breakfast in catering. John brought another offline of the video, which was safer, so we compared them and decided that the original was far better, although a couple of changes were required to make the performance a bit less outright menacing. It is, after all, a love song. Back to the Royal Court for another run-through. Prev recorded a board tape, which sounded great, so we're getting there. Did an interview with someone from a radio station, and then back round the corner to the hotel. Signed stuff for the love scruffs at the stage door, had a much-needed quiet hour, and then returned to the venue, which by now was full of people. The show went well. I sang quite well, but felt I was a bit tentative. After the show, Paul Lewis came back and said he enjoyed my singing, made my day. At the beginning of each tour, we are all given laminated passes, which we are supposed to hang around our necks. These get us past security, into the gig, backstage, etc. for the whole tour. This is the first show, and I've already lost it. Back to the hotel for snowballs in the bar, which tasted like liquid lemon meringues, and then went to bed. Wednesday, 18th of September, Liverpool to Oxford Apollo. Checked out of the dodgy St George's Hotel, must be Protestants, at 11.30 and assumed my normal position spark out on the back seat of the car. We arrived at the Oxford Hotel at the Pear Tree Roundabout, which was most reminiscent of an American motel. Remember Saratoga? And after half an hour, drove into Oxford to the Apollo. Arrived to find Julia Simpson, DJ from GWR Radio, waiting for an interview. So chatted to her over dinner and then into the sound check from hell. Everything that could go wrong went wrong, including Privet. The boss had a puncture. John Arneson took Pete and me to Fox FM out on an industrial estate on the edge of town. Radio's not as glamorous as you might think. 
Half the time, I don't even think there's anyone in the building. Just pre-recorded shows automated to air. Got interviewed and then straight back to the show. The show went really, really well until the encores, which were a bit iffy due to disappearing keyboards. But everyone I spoke to didn't even notice. After the show, backstage was busy. I chatted with Ben, old school friend and drummer in my first band, Harlow. His real name is Robert Connor, but he got christened Beneth for some reason at school and it stuck. He had driven up from London and stunned me by admitting he had both my Marillion albums, saying he thought Cover My Eyes was the best single he'd heard that year. I was, and still am, very flattered. Back in the hotel motel, I was interviewed by Metal Hammer or something, and then finished the GWR interview at 2.40. Phew, no wonder I get knackered. Only an idiot would contemplate getting up for a haircut after a night like this. Thursday, 19th of September, Oxford, Henley, Cambridge Corn Exchange. Got up for a haircut at 7.30. Showered and then drove to Henley-on-Thames with Dee to visit Lisa, my hairdresser. I must be deranged, but I decided my hair is badly in need of a tint and a cut. Lisa gave me a trim and Sarah gave Dee likewise. Well, he might as well now he's here. Back to Oxford to pick up the boys and then off to Cambridge. Checked into a hotel out of town and had an hour's snooze before returning to the city centre. Drove around for ages trying to find the corn exchange. Ran into old fans Inga and Siska, who press-ganged me into a short interview for Radio Delft. My voice felt hoarse all day and I was much tired, so I returned to the hotel after sound check and went to bed again for an hour. Returning to the show at 8.15. Mark was still programming. He's mad. It's official. And we don't call him Mad Jack for nothing. The audience was fantastic and it was definitely the most rewarding show of the tour so far. Paul Elliott from Kerrang! was backstage afterwards so I gave him jip for our lousy Cumbria review which was a pack of lies by some journalist called Chris Potter who I was later told wasn't actually there for our set. Back at the hotel, we gathered in Ian's room and toasted the tour with champagne sent up by Louise Vase. Bless her. An hour's chin-wagging and tales from the road by Dee, and then off to bed. Zzz. Friday, 20th of September. Cambridge, London TV, Manchester. Up at 10.30 and off to the station with John Arneson. A moment's panic ensued when someone nicked our cab and we had to wait for another one, but we arrived at Cambridge Station on time at 12 o'clock to catch the train to London. It was, once again, a beautiful day. The past few weeks have been lovely, and watching the countryside roll by evoked dreamy images of steam trains and railway children in my head probably a flashback to my early childhood of getting the steam train up to the Lake District to see my gran. Chatted with John about his old days with the rock poet John Cooper Clark. John used to manage him, and he loves trains and went everywhere on them, including his tours. I've gradually come to know and trust John more than ever. Everyone gives him shit, night and day. It can't be easy. We really are surrounded by some wonderful characters, 
The TV clip was filmed at EMI and went well in an uneventful sort of way. I saw the online of Dryland, which the girls in promo said was their favourite of the three so far. Nonetheless, I still went round to Why Not and changed a couple of things I wasn't happy with. I gave Howard Greenhall my cruise shirt. Took the train from Euston up to Manchester. Had dinner on the train, first class for the second time, ooh, get her, and arrived at the good old Britannia Hotel around 10pm. What a lovely hotel. Had a few drinks in the bar. Paul and Annie Lewis were there. I really think he regrets having to leave. Paul used to be our tour manager, but had to knock it on the head in favour of steady employment. Stayed sober, tomato juices, went to bed. By the way, to this day, I think Dryland is the best ever of our promo vids. I'm putting it on record. Saturday, 21st of September, Manchester. Rose around 11 and a bluted to the psychedelic furs on the Walkman speakers. Went out for a walk and muddled my way through to Marks and Sparks. It wasn't raining. Bought yet more underwear, as I never seem to have any, and a black cotton turtleneck shirt. Vibed out in a cafe for an hour and then modelled back. Saw a lovely pair of red boots for Fifi and have since arranged for a pair to be sent home. Dropped my things off at the hotel and took a bus down to the Apollo. They all seemed to go there. Made a wind and voice noise to go on the front of the video for Howard, with much help from Mad Jack. Gave the DAT to Smick to Red Star to London. Soundcheck was a bit boomy, but otherwise okay. I tried on the finished mirror coat, which Trish had finally finished sewing. Unfortunately, it didn't really do what I'd hoped it would when I flashed it under the lights, so we elbowed the whole idea. Sorry, Trish. Think of it as a zen exercise. Back at the hotel, we met up with Tony Smith, who had popped up in one of his unfeasibly expensive fast cars. He said he felt embarrassed about America. I'm not surprised. He didn't say he was embarrassed about taking his increased management percentage, though, while nicking our manager. Anyway, the show went really well. My sound was still boomy, but the audience was incredible. At the end of Incommunicado, everyone in the place, right to the back of the balconies, was singing. Best audience yet on this tour. Right, and we're back. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, that section of the uh, of, of the diary. Obviously, uh, first part of the whole is an Eden tour. Um, which, funnily enough, I think I saw three dates on that tour, but I'll mention that next week because I think the first one that I saw actually is in next week's episode. Um, the thing I need to talk to you about isn't actually anything about Holders Need, actually. It's about, or certainly not the tour, it's about the reaction of EMI to the, uh, to the Dryland video. Because mm. um, obviously the Dryland video has kind of been all running underneath all of the, 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 the installments so far. And an EMI didn't like it. I don't think they did like it. Um, I know that the the girl who ran PMI, which is called Picture Music Industries, which was their film um, 
a film department, and the, so they used to actually be the people who you'd go and have meetings with if you were going to make a video. And the uh, the girl who was in charge of 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 that was called Lana Topham, and she she she's done an awful lot of work with Pink Floyd and 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 their their visual productions, and I think she's. I think she's a producer on a lot of that Floyd stuff, and she used to work with Bill Wyman, and she used to work with um, who was the other one? Storm Thorgerson, the designer from Hypnosis, who did all those Pink Floyd covers and whatnot. Um, she was his producer, but anyway, she 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 was working there, and she once confessed to me on the slide that she thought it was the best video we'd ever made. But the official response from EMI was was one of, of of disappointment because I think they, as much as I I kind of knew it when I did it, um, I knew they wouldn't like it because it was it was a bit manic as a performance, and I think the uh, the performance that they'd given Howard Greenall, the director. I think what they were hoping to get was just something kind of wistful and dreamy that would help him sell a love song. Um, and that's what he was trying to get out of me that day at the, at the Blue Lagoon in, in Iceland when all the old ladies were laughing at me and in the end I just couldn't do it. Um, so they want they wanted a no-one-can video then? They wanted yeah, something more? Yeah, I think they did. I think they, they didn't want anything quite as edgy. Um and I'd started to feel a little bit um, worried that we'd gone to Iceland and we'd shot all this stuff of me drifting about in a long black coat on on glaciers and next to next to waterfalls and geysers and whatnot, trying to look heroic, as as Howard kept saying, I "Go down there and look heroic," he used to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wonder about looking heroic. We'll be back in a minute. Um, so that, that was my brief. Um, and I, I started to worry about that. And I thought, we, you know, we're going we're gonna to cut a vocal performance to camera into this. I think it should be something really edgy to take all of that away, you know, some, some, something. Uh, and, and I'd got my favourite piece of of movie footage ever by anyone is is in a Woody Allen film called Stardust Memories and he go oh, he goes to visit his his wife who's recovering in a from a breakdown in an institution and it's Charlotte Rampling and he's sitting there and she's staring at him going you know you're being unfaithful to me aren't you? you don't care about me and he's cut it so she keeps saying it again he repeats all the cuts and he you know and they're staggered like that and it really is a manic onslaught and i loved it and and i was trying to get that feeling for um, for the lead vocal in, in in dry land that's exactly what i was after um and so howard cut it accordingly he shot it you know with the and i woke up i woke up the morning i was going to do it and thought i should do it dripping wet and I don't know why, but I should. I should, you know, so I put my head in a bucket before each of the takes. So my hair was actually just dripping and I was, you know, and the water was dripping off me while I was doing it at the camera, uh, which I suppose is a bit ironic for a song called Dry Land. Um, 
but I think it was just too manic for EMI. But I'm glad I did it, and I, and I think it I think it holds up. And after the day after the day I'd had, to be honest, there's no wonder I looked like that because. I'd had one hell of a day already before we even got round to shooting it. And, and and as I said in the diary, I was then on my way to Radio 1 to sit in with Bob Harris for two hours. It's, um, I think it suits the song. It's not... I've never thought that that lyric was really a no-one-can type of lyric. I, I, you know, there's an edginess to the lyric. There's a. It's a song really about a, a love affair that hasn't happened and so easily could have, but didn't really. That's what that's what I'm on about. When, you know, in all the time I've known you, you've been so edgy and nervous. I never wanted to own you. It's it's about sexual tension as much as it is about getting together and doing anything or even having dinner. You know, it's just about you know, is there something going on here or isn't there? You know, and sometimes you know you have those moments in your life where you think, is there something going on here, or is it in my head? You know, and I don't, I don't want to go. I don't want to go assuming that something's going on if, if, if nothing is. You know, and sometimes you wonder if it's all in your head. So, that that song is is sort of about that. It's about it's about somebody being, uh, uh, you know, removed from you. The the you know, you're an island. I can't leave you all out. See, is 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 a metaphor for the distance. You know that you can't travel between. You can't get from the shore to the place where this person is, um, and so you know it's quite—it's still quite a romantic song. But I thought it needed an edge. For what it's worth, I agree. I think I think EMI were wrong. I think you know, uh, I'm with you. I think it's—I uh, think it stands up really well, actually. I can imagine them all sitting in the board meeting. You know, when it, when it came through, and all going, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> well, I can imagine that as well. Oh, no. <laughs> How much was this? Well, <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 about there for this week. We've uh, we've we've done our normal of panicking about the fact we won't have anything to talk about, and then we've nattered on for you know quite quite a while. Um, the only thing we need to we touch upon because we mentioned it last week. Um, by the time you hear this. Uh, we're hoping to have um, a Patreon page up and running so you can actually uh, support the show. Um, and we've been talking about it, and we've we've agreed that we're going to have a. There'll be a couple of tiers. There'll be a, a, a tier that be, it'll be a sort of a couple of dollars. Patreon's in dollars for those who've never uh, explored Patreon before. Um, there'll be a tier that'll be a couple of dollars, which will just be a, 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 a help towards supporting the show. And then there'll be another tier that'll be five dollars. And for the five dollar patrons, we're going to provide a bit of extra content so we've got a few ideas of of things we can do for extra bits of, of content um and i think for every one of the people that supports the show we'll we'll find a way of getting the show to you a bit earlier uh, so you don't have to wait for the normal monday release we'll try and get it so it's something you can enjoy over the over the weekend so uh, look out for that um because by the time you hear this we should have got our shit together and got that organized but h is looking at me quizzically now so, no, I was um, just wondering if if we should announce here and now what what the extra content might be, or are we going to just think about that and then then? Well, we we could do one of the things we talked about was doing some Q and A's, wasn't it? And also taking um, 
some questions that are on the guest book from the website. Yeah, over the years on the Steve Hogarth dot um, com site where I've got a guest book, which I try and encourage people to leave messages at. Um, people often leave messages that are questions, you know, what happened about this and I've always meant to ask you that and I can't always reply to them. But it might be quite good fun to go through the years of all of those messages and trawl back through and any unanswered questions I could could answer. Um, Also, I've got bits of diary that I've written since I published the diary, so much more modern times um you know with with a view to i guess at some point before i drop dead um releasing a volume three which will probably be pretty sketchy because i i don't write the diary nearly as religiously as i used to uh but nonetheless some days just have to be written down um (laughs) and even if i write them down a year later they're usually as vivid um so I've had a few few interesting days. Um I mean the, the, the trip to South America last year alone is uh, comedy gold, more or less, from start to finish. And to, just into if you find trauma funny, then it's comedy gold. Um so there's plenty to say about that. And then of course there was the day Mark Kelly ran into the concrete mixer on the on day one of the German tour. And I do. I, I found this morning that I have all that written down. So I could could perhaps tempt you into uh, into our little club with, with with some of those. So that so there you have it. There'll be some Q and A stuff that we'll take from the website first, um, and and some extra unpublished diary entries, which won't actually form part of the podcast itself. So um, I I I think that's. That's a great reason to to give the show a little bit of support, really. Yeah, we're appealing to you for some for for a, a, mo- a really modest subscription because this can't be totally totally free forever because it, it it does cost Ant and I a few quid to put it together. Um, but you know, it it's uh, I'm sure it would more than pay for itself with with even the most modest subscription. So don't feel you've got to sell the car. Um, it's only it's only a choice between what what did we say two dollars or five dollars two dollars or five dollars yes yeah. whatever yeah. is that it's one pound sixty or and to be fair if a there's month. probably no there's no better time to sell a car anyway really because you, you're not using it no that's true so maybe do maybe do sell the car <laughs> <laughs> sell sell the car pay in advance yeah yes okay. yes pay in advance F- yes. fifty years worth up front. Yes. Yeah, we're still going to be doing this in 50 years. <laughs> okay, well, well, that's a thought to leave this week on. Um, it's been a pleasure, as always. Um, stay safe, everybody out there. Uh, and we will be uh, we'll be back with you same time, same place um, next week, I guess. Lovely. Can't wait. Yes. Sounds fab. <laughs> Take care, everybody. I'll put my teeth back in now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you.
This has been an A Short Stories production.